As they approached Jerusalem, near the towns of Bethphage and Bethany, they came to the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples on ahead with these instructions. Go to the village there and ahead of you. As soon as you get there, you will find a colt tied up that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If someone asks you why you were doing that, just say that the master needs it and he will send it back at once. So they went and found the colt in the street, tied to the door of the house. As they were untying it, some of the bystanders asked them, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered that Jesus has told them, and the crowd let them go. They brought the colt to Jesus, threw their cloaks over the animal, and Jesus got on. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches in the field and spread them on the road. The people who were in front of, who were in front, and those who followed behind them began to shout, Praise God! God bless him who comes in the name of the Lord. God bless the coming kingdom of King David, our father. Praise be to God. Jesus entered Jerusalem, went, went into the temple, and looked around at, ev at everything. But since it was already late in the day, he went out of Bethany with the 12 disciples. Super. Thanks, Kaiser. By the way, Kaiser's making his debut on guitar for us today, so uh, thank you. And thank you for the excellent reading. Today we're looking at the king, the king's coming, and he's coming on a, on a colt, on a, uh, on, a, on a young horse. Now, let me ask you this. Um, what's the best procession you've ever been part of or you've ever seen? You've either witnessed it, not on TV, but you've been there. The best procession, celebration procession, that you've either been part of yourself or you've witnessed. What would you say? Where have you been? It's been a, a really good procession celebration. Notting Hill Carnival. That is quite an occasion, isn't it? That's amazing. Queen's Golden Jubilee. Where were you? So you were on TV. Wow, we missed it. Okay. I'd forgotten about that. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Others? Disney or the Olympic opening? The Olympic opening. We, uh, we lived in Wealdstone in 2012, and the Olympic torch was brought through Wealdstone. Remember that? And uh, that was quite fun just to be there, and uh, there were lots of people dancing and singing and doing all kinds of things as, people, as they brought the torch through. That was quite fun. Any others? When I was younger at the University of Leeds, we came all the way to London for an anti apartheid demonstration, and we marched all the way from Hyde Park to Downing Street. Did you? What year was that? Wow. Aha. <laughs> Not going to give too much away. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that. <laughs> 1876, I think, but. Um... <laughs> The, the most spectacular procession I've ever witnessed was uh, when Man U won the Champions League in 1999. I wasn't living in Manchester, but I, I'd been invited back to Manchester because my Penny and I, if you don't know, we used to lead a church there. <coughs> Excuse me. And, and it just so happened I was invited up at the weekend of the Champions League final. And I happened to be on the train while the match was going on. And the conductor was giving us updates on what the score was and everything all the way up. 
And the next day, they arrived back in Manchester, and there's a big parade with the trophy and everything around Manchester, and I was able to be there. That was, that was quite something to be part of that. You know, a big celebration, a big uh, a procession like that is something you don't forget. It, it, it has an impact on you. You remember it. I think it's a bit like this. Why do we have this uh, here in, in Mark chapter 11? And it's repeated in the other Gospels. It's just Jesus on a young horse. I mean, what's the big deal in a way? He's going into Jerusalem. But it's, it is a big deal. We've got, this, we've got the crowds. We've got cloaks. We've got all kinds of things going on here. We've got scriptures being referenced. Some of them most of them here are not actually mentioned, but there's allusions to them. There's all kinds of things going on. A great celebration that I think has several purposes, but at least part of it is to lift our spirits, to, to give us a bit of, an, of a prefigured image of what it's going to be like when this life is over, when this world is over, and when we are entering, if you like, the, the ultimate temple of the heavenlies, you could say. And this is a little bit of a... Um, a little bit of a window into perhaps what that might be like. And so let's have a look at this passage and then let's see what we might be able to uh, dig out of it a little bit. So where are they coming from? Uh, They're coming from Jericho. A few years ago, Penny and I were lucky enough to go to Israel, and uh, that's a sign in Jericho. It claims to be the oldest city in the world. I, I mean, I don't know quite how they verified that or compared it with all the other cities in the world. I'm not quite sure, but... It is certainly one of the oldest inhabited cities that's been discovered by archaeologists so far. So that's uh, Jericho. And the road up to Jerusalem, it's a continual climb because Jerusalem, as you probably know, is is on a mountain. And uh, the road looks a lot like that. So it's not not the A41. It's a tough tough old walk. You're going to walk most of it. Uh, You're going to walk through. It's a desert, effectively, between Jericho and Jerusalem, and because that's where the parable of the Samaritan is set by Jesus, and it's dangerous. You can't quite see it there, but um, there's a ravine in front of where I'm taking the photograph, and you might have walked up the ravine, and you'd have been very exposed to bandits. You can imagine, especially at dark, dark at night, there's no street lighting, obviously, in those days. So it's a dangerous, frightening, grueling, long, hot, tiring, uphill journey all the way to Jerusalem. And this is what Jesus and his disciples have done as they come to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany. We actually don't know where Bethphage is. No archaeologists have discovered that yet. Although the word, interestingly enough, means house of unripe figs. And that's interesting because of what happens next in this chapter, which is that Jesus curses a fig tree for not having figs. So there's something going on there, which I don't have time to just unpack now. But it's an interesting thing. And of course, Bethany is mentioned. Uh, what do we know about Jesus' connection with Bethany? Anybody? What do we know about his connection with Bethany? I'm hearing mumbling. Mary and Martha lived there and Lazarus, of course, as well. So we know that Jesus had friends there. We know that he stayed there, visited their home. Seems to be quite a connection there. So this is where he is. He's coming up through Bethphage, uh, Bethany to... The, uh, the Mount of Olives. So the Mount of Olives today looks a little like that, at least part of it. Uh, this is a view from the west side to the east side. So the Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem, and it's, uh, it's about 3,000 feet high. And when you're at the top of that, you're looking down on the Temple Mount. So the temple is there to the left. You can see the, the, rock, the dome of the rock there now, the mosque that's there. That's where the temple would have been in the days of Jesus. 
And so you're looking down on that. So Jesus and his disciples come up over the brow of that hill on the top and they look down and there is the temple. There is Jerusalem. There is Jesus's destiny. That's where he's going. And that's what, uh, that's what we see. And he would have known, although it's a bit obscure to us, but I'll explain it, that Jewish people were expecting that Jesus would come, uh, that God would come at some point in judgment to judge Israel and the Gentiles, and he would come from the east. So they were expecting God to come from the Mount of Olives, effectively, to, uh, to that spot. In fact, I put the scripture, yeah, Zechariah 14. On that day, talking about the day of judgment, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley, so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. Now, how we, do, we specifically interpret that is not something I'm going to go into right now, but the point being that as Jesus, Messiah, Son of God, representative of God, and, and indeed God on this earth, bringing joy and judgment to the earth, he's approaching from the east, he would have known this scripture. He would have known that this is part of what he's all about. Because the judgment that's talked about in the Old Testament is not necessarily end-time judgment. Because if you look through the Old Testament, you'll know there were many judgments on Israel uh, from the times of Exodus on. And God would come in judgment. The prophets would prophesy that. Sometimes there was a more long-term judgment, but often there was a judgment, it's coming soon because of the wickedness of the Israelites and not holding to uh, God's commands and things like that. So Jesus has this, I think, in mind. And then he, he has this rather interesting scheme. How would you feel if someone came to your house and said, I need your car, like, like a stranger. I need your car. And you said, well, what? I don't, what? No, I don't think so. And he said, no, no, it's okay. The Lord needs it. Like that settles it, right? <laughs> now I know you're crazy. I mean, I already thought that. Now I'm completely sure you're mad. And no, go away or I'll call the police, right? You'd put something on Facebook uh, for your local community or next door or something and beware of this mad person who says they are from the Lord. Now, we don't know the exact details here because Mark doesn't give them to us. But nonetheless, Jesus, here's a thing, and I haven't got time to talk about this in detail, but here's an interesting thing. You know, last week, if you were here, Stefan was preaching on Mark 10 and uh, the servant sort of style of leadership of Jesus, right? That um, even the Son of Man, verse 45, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's a servant leader. Hey, but he's being all demanding now. Get me that cult. Get it for me. Go and tell them I need it and go and bring it. He's telling his disciples, go and get the thing. He sits on it. They put cloaks on it. Their cloaks, not his. They spread their cloaks in front and palm branches, not his. And he goes riding, you know, riding into Jerusalem. And pilgrims were supposed to walk into Jerusalem. You weren't supposed to ride. So what's he doing? I mean, you know, we were talking about servant leadership and now he's all like, oh, I'm on a horse, look at me. So there's an odd kind of thing going on here. And in the, later in the chapter, he curses a fig tree, which doesn't sound very kind. I mean, you know, you're not going to get on Gardner's world if you've got that kind of behavior. And, and he's driving out, driving out. He's driving out those who are trading, overturning the tables. I mean, imagine, you know, just turning it over, messy, noisy. Doesn't look very kind and gentle. What happened to gentle Jesus? And uh, he's calling them out, saying, my house shall be called out of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. And, um, and, then, and then they question him, and he won't even give them an answer. He's like, nope, nope, you might have your questions, but I'm not answering. 
It's a funny thing, you know. I think one of the things, and we all can't unpack it now, but I think one of the things that shows us is we've got to be careful about labeling Jesus as a, in a certain kind of a way, like the Jesus we like. And there's probably a Jesus you really like, and there's a Jesus I really like, and they may not be quite the same, because we tend to value different things in our leaders, say. Some of us will think a certain leader is the bee's knees, and other people will think that person's rubbish, we should get them changed. It happens all the time with football managers. Yeah. Uh, people like certain managers and don't like others. And, and um, we've got to be a little careful here and let Jesus be who he is. And sometimes he's the one washing the feet. And sometimes he's the one saying, to fulfill God's will, I need to get on a horse. And I need a ride into Jerusalem because that's what God has called me to do. It's really not about him, of course, in the end. It's about God's calling on his life. Jesus is gentle, but he's also stern and strong. He is kind, but he's also willing to call sin, sin, and rebuke where it's required. It's important as you and I read our Bibles that we let Jesus comfort us and we let him challenge us. That's all I'd say on this point for now. So I don't think he is being overly demanding. I think it's about the word of God, but it is an interesting contrast that we see here. He rides on this, um, on this colt that has never been ridden before. Isn't that what it says, I think? I've lost it for a moment. They've never been ridden on before. Right. You know, which indicates a couple of things to a Jewish uh, person. Firstly, this was an animal probably destined for sacrifice because you could only sacrifice at the temple animals that had not been uh, used uh, for work or anything like that. So it's probable that it is indicating You've got Jesus, of course, for us, the sacrifice on an animal willing to be sacrificed or planned to be sacrificed. That's a possible uh, thought there. Um, and also, um, if you're a king, you don't borrow someone else's horse that's already been ridden on. You have your own horse and you ride on it. No one else rides on it. That's the way it is, right? I don't know if it's true, but there were those stories that apparently when the queen went on the royal train, somebody took a, a, the queen's toilet seat uh, from the palace and, and you know, stuck it on in the train because, you know, she wasn't going to use somebody else's toilet seat, was she? I mean, who'd want to do that? So I don't know if that's true or, or an urban myth, but you get the idea that it's a, it's a horse for one king, and this is King Jesus right here. So the disciples, what do they do? They go and do what they're told. I think that's rather impressive. I mean, if Jesus told me this or somebody told me this, I'd think, what? Go and tell somebody I never met that I need their horse and, and what? I, but anyway, they do. So we see them being obedient, and actually we see their faith being rewarded because they do it, and then it all works out. So there we go. That's a bit of a lesson for us too, isn't it? Trust, even when it seems a bit strange. And then we need to talk a bit more about messianic prophecy. Uh, not too technical here, but this thing about riding on a horse and this thing about uh, the cloaks and going into Jerusalem will remind a Jewish leader of a, number of, a reader of a number of things. For example, Genesis 49, verse 11. This is a promise to Judah. And of course, Jesus was of the tribe of Judah. So it's a promise to Judah. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. This was thought of in Jesus' day as a messianic prophecy, that one would come on a colt, that one would come and wash his garments and robes in the blood of the grapes. Now, when we think about the Lord's Supper and the cross, of course, we see a different meaning to this, but we'll have to come back to that a bit later. But it was, and it also would remind somebody of a Jewish background of Jehu. 
when Jehu was proclaimed king, in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps. This is the king. They put their, their cloaks down there and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So that's one of the reasons they put their cloaks down on the road here. Because they're thinking, ah, a, a new king is come, like, like a Jehu. Because Jehu was a warrior king, of course. And they were hoping that Jesus would be that kind of king who would take out his sword and deal with the Romans. It also might have reminded them of 1 Kings chapter 1 about Solomon. Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, the Cherethites, the Pelethites went down, had Solomon, this is David still alive, ride on King David's mule, okay, another animal here, brought him to Gihon, Zadok the priest took the horn of oil from the tent, anointed Solomon. This was at a time when the succession from David was not assured because David had other sons and some of them were fighting to sort of be the ones to succeed David. And David said, no, 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 it's going to be Solomon. So he organizes this. They blow the trumpet and all the people said, long live King Solomon. All the people went up after him playing on pipes, rejoicing with great joy so that the earth was split by their noise. So again, David's mule. That would have been in the mind of the people that are seeing Jesus thinking about him as Messiah, as king, as a Davidic king, which explains why they say in verse 10, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. They're thinking of a king, a Messiah like David in, uh, in that sense. And so we have all these allusions, and then we have the crowd. And the crowd are really excited. I mean, this has made their day. They, they're putting their cloaks on the ground. I don't know about you, I, I cannot think of much of a scenario where I would be happy to take off my jacket and lay it on the ground in front of a horse. I mean, can you try and get your head around that? I, I don't know if I would, I can't imagine. My coat on a road for a horse to ride over, not only would it be bad for the jacket, I mean, it doesn't seem like good stewardship, does it? I mean, you know, God gave me the money to buy this thing. Why do I want to put it on the ground and let a horse trample all over it, let alone what else it might leave behind on it? Um, this, this is a really strange thing, isn't it? See, when you believe that Jesus is who he is, it does make you do strange things. It makes you do things that don't make sense to people with no faith. It makes you get up early to pray when you could do with a bit of extra sleep. It makes you turn off certain television programs because they're just not conducive to your spiritual well-being. It makes you attend events, Sunday services, and things like this when other people would, when other people would say, well, you know, I'm sure there's better things to do. There's things that need doing. And there are times we don't join in with the way that our family or our work colleagues talk. And they, people think it's strange. But Christians do strange things when they know Jesus, when they know that he's the king. Now and again, when you watch a tournament like the Euros earlier this year, and they've got, now and again, they'll cut away from the game when a goal is scored, and they'll cut away to um, somewhere where there's a big screen, and there are thousands of people in a square somewhere, right? And they're watching the game. And they cut away to when the goal is scored, and everybody's there, and, and pretty much everybody is drinking, and pretty much everybody has a pint of beer in their hand, thousands of them. And what happens when a goal is scored? All the guys go, yes! And their beer 
goes everywhere. It's hilarious. I mean, that's quite expensive, some of that beer, I'm sure. But they just, they can't help themselves. They just go, yes. And they don't care that the beer has like, lost the beer and it's maybe gone over their head. And everybody's, it's, they don't care because of the joy. It's the spontaneous joy. And this is what we're seeing here. A spontaneous, um, unfettered, uninhibited joy. The Messiah has come. The King has come. We are going to be free soon. Free soon. They have hopes. They have high expectations. They have joy. They know that history is happening right before their eyes. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble, mounted on a donkey, on a coat, colt, the foal of a donkey. They would have been thinking about this. And Psalm 118, a royal psalm. I'll give you thanks for you answered me. You become my salvation. You see how they, they shout, Hosanna, that's God save us effectively. They need salvation. They need freedom. He says, I will give you thanks for you answer me. You become my salvation. Salvation is there. Excuse me, available for them. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Of course, that's quoted elsewhere in the New Testament. The Lord has done this. It's marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. That's halal, halal, hallelujah. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they're shouting here. Uh, From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. He has made his light shine on us with boughs in hand. They've got their branches, right? Join in the festal procession up to the horns of the altar. They are excited about what they hope for. That is about to become a reality. Even though, of course, they didn't fully understand. They were looking for it. A warrior king, whereas Jesus was going to be a sacrificial king. And at the end of all this um, noise, it says that Jesus entered Jerusalem, went into the temple courts, looked around at everything, but it was already late. So he goes back out to Bethany. I think that's rather interesting. Wasn't Jesus in charge of his own schedule? Couldn't he have got there earlier and sorted it out? But we've got something here about Jesus doing enough in one day, coming back the next day to overturn the tables, to deal with the problems in the temple. We've got something here about lateness. The hour is getting late. It's getting late in his life. It's getting late in his mission. I think that's what that's indicating on some level. He didn't like what he found. He did not like what he found in the temple. His goal was actually not Jerusalem. His goal was the temple because the one who was going to cleanse the temple by offering his body, he was coming to the temple. Two thoughts for us today, and then I'm going to take us towards the communion, the Lord's Supper, and Ava's going to pray for us. Two thoughts. One, when's the last time you threw your arms in the air with unbridled joy figuratively or, or, or physically, about Jesus, about something he's done, about a remembrance of how amazing he is. When's the last time you just gladdened your heart to the point where you didn't even know a smile came on your face and you didn't realize you were smiling? 
Or you blessed someone, didn't realize you'd even done it. When's the last time? We've got to keep our sense of excitement about Jesus alive. And how is another, another topic for another lesson another day? But if we're not excited about Jesus, and I don't mean every single moment of every day, we're all human, right? But if we don't have those moments, I think fairly regularly, where we're reminded about how amazing Jesus is, as we pray, as we read God's word, as we talk to each other about Jesus, if that's not happening every now and again, something's amiss and we need to put it right. We need to think about what's missing. Because these moments are appropriate when you're around Jesus. An abandonment to joyful praise and celebration and thankfulness. Throw your arms in the air this week. Second thought, Jesus doesn't like what he finds in the temple. It makes me wonder whether, it makes me wonder whether, does he like everything he finds in my heart? If he was to come and have a look round. And I don't know exactly how Jesus does this. I don't think the New Testament gives us detail on how Jesus does this. I'm not sure that he knows every thought I have. I'm not sure he chooses to know every thought. I don't think we can prove it one way or the other in Scripture. But I just wonder. I just wonder. Does everything in my heart please him? Does the way I live please him? Isn't it good now and again to let him in, give him a guided tour, or even just give him the keys and say, have a look around, Jesus. And anything you don't like is up for grabs. You can take it, you can redeem it, you can change it, or you can tell me what I need to do differently. The temple needed that. The temple had not, was no longer a house of prayer. And what's the temple today? The temple is you and me, right? We are temples of the Holy Spirit. And so maybe it's worth t- taking some time to think about How can I let Jesus do a little inventory of my spiritual life? I think coming to the end of the year is a good time to think about such things. How's this year been spiritually with you and Jesus? So to wrap up, what we have here is a victory procession. But it's not like Alexander the Great going into um, into Nineveh, Babylon. It's not like uh, any of the other kings of the day, Roman emperors. It's not a horse, it's a cult. It's not perfume and jewels being offered, it's palms and cloaks. It's not a triumphal entry in a militaristic sense. It is, in fact, an entry which is leading to a surrender. This is not a conquering hero coming. He is conquering sin and death, but he's not conquering people and peoples. Instead, he's sacrificing himself. We've got it turned upside down here because of the heart of Jesus. He is the king who came to die. That's why he came. The last British king to lead their troops into war was King George II in 1743 in the, in the very famous and well-known Austrian Wars of Succession, which I know you're all very familiar with. <laughs> Kings always used to lead their troops into battle, but that's the last time a British king did that. The last time a king of England, at least, was, was killed in battle was Richard III at Bosworth in 1485. Our king rides in front to die for us. He's never behind. He's never just, well, you, you get on with it, and I'll, I'll, I'll be around, don't worry. He leads us through our lives. He leads us 
to a pure heart, a cleansed temple heart. He leads us to a place of joy where we can celebrate what he's done for us. And this bread and wine that we take, these little capsules, which of course physically are inadequate, really, they have to do for COVID, right? And that's, that's okay. But these little capsules representing the body of, of Jesus with the wafer and then the blood of Jesus with the, with the juice here, these remind us of who we follow and how amazing he is. Just to go back to that scripture in Genesis 49, he will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. And I can't prove it, but I wonder whether Jesus thought about that. And he, he, didn't, he was not washed in the blood of graves. He was washed in his own blood, in a sense, poured out for you and me. And we take this symbol of wine to remind us that because of the washing that Jesus has given you and me, we have a clear conscience. We have forgiveness. We have the hope of eternal life. We have everything we need for this life and beyond. I'm going to ask Ava to come up and pray for us and then we'll pass out the uh, capsules here and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Let us pray. Our God, Almighty Father, at this time of the service we come before you um, to remember the sacrifice, Father, that Jesus died for our sins on the cross, Father God. And as we take the representation of um, your body and the blood that you shed for us on, on that cross. Help us to reflect on our choices that we make in our everyday life, Father God, um, and may they truly honor you. We bless the, the bread and the wine that we're about to take. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. amen.